0: Hello and welcome to Queen V, The Life of Queen Victoria. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. If you wish to support this podcast, there will be a link provided for you in the show details and it will be very much appreciated as it goes to help support the cost of maintaining the podcast and our website. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Queen V, The Life of of queen victoria letter eight of letters from england 1846 to 1849 by elizabeth davis bancroft read for librivox.org into the public domain letter to wdb and a b london january 1st 1847 my dear sons i wrote my last sheet on the 19th and your father went on that day to Cambridge to be present at the tricentennial celebration of Trinity College. He went also the day after the anniversary, which was on our twenty-second December, to Eli, with Peacock, the great mathematician, who was dean of Ely, to see the great cathedral there. While he was at Cambridge, I passed the evening of the twenty-second at Lady Morgan's, who happened to have a most agreeable set." Lady Morgan's reunions are entertaining to me because they are collections of lions, but they are not strictly and exclusively fashionable. They remind me in their composition from various circles of Mrs. Otis's parties in Boston. We have in this respect an advantage over the English themselves, as in our position we see a great variety of cliques. For instance, last evening, the thirty-first, I took Louisa, at half-past seven, to the house of Mr. Hawes, an under-secretary of state, to see a beautiful children's mask. It was an impersonation of the old year, dressed a little like Lear with snowy hair and draperies. Old year played his part intimately, at times with great pathos, and then introducing witty hits at all the doings of his reign, such as exploding cotton, the new planet, a subject which he put at rest as far beyond our reach, etc., etc. He then introduced, one by one, the children of all ages as days of the coming year. There was Twelfth Day, crowned as Queen, with her cake in her hands. There was Christmas, covered with holly and mistletoe. There was April Fool's Day, dressed as Harlequin. There was, above all, Shrove Tuesday, with her frying pan of pancakes, dressed as a little cook. There was a charming boy of fourteen or fifteen, as St. Valentine's Day, with his packet of valentines addressed to the young ladies present. There was the 5th of November, full of wit and fun, etc., the longest day an elder brother of william's height with a cap of three or four feet high and his little sister of five as the shortest day this was all arranged to music and each made little speeches introducing themselves the old year after introducing his successors and after much pathos is going going gone and falls covered with his drapery upon removing which instead of the lifeless body of the old year is discovered a sweet little flower-crowned girl of five or six as the new year it was charming and i was so pleased that instead of taking louisa away at nine o'clock as i intended i left her to see sir roger de coverley in the dress of his time last night at mr putnam's i met william and mary howitt and some of the lesser lights i have put down my pen to answer a note just brought in to dine next thursday with the dowager countess of charleville where we were last week in the evening she is eighty-four, tell this to Grandmamma, and still likes to surround herself with beaux and belles esprit. and, as her son and daughter reside with her, this is still easy. The old lady talks French as fast as possible, and troubles me somewhat by talking it to me, forgetting that a foreign minister's wife can talk English. Your father likes to be here. He has copying going on in the State Paper Office and British Museum, and his heart is full of manuscripts. IT IS THE FIRST THOUGHT, I BELIEVE, WHOEVER HE SEES, WHAT PAPERS ARE IN THEIR FAMILY. HE MAKES GREAT INTEREST WITH EVEN THE LADIES SOMETIMES FOR THIS PURPOSE. UPON THE WHOLE I LOVE MY OWN COUNTRY BETTER THAN EVER, BUT WHETHER I SHALL NOT MISS, UPON MY RETURN, SOME THINGS TO WHICH I AM GRADUALLY GETTING ACCUSTOMED, I HAVE YET TO LEARN. THE GRATIFICATION OF MIXING CONSTANTLY WITH THOSE FOREMOST IN THE WORLD FOR RANK, SCIENCE, LITERATURE, OR ALL WHICH ADORNS SOCIETY, IS GREAT but there is a certain yearning towards those whose habits, education, and modes of thought are the same as our own, which I can never get over. In the full tide of conversation I often stop and think, I may unconsciously be jarring the prejudices or preconceived notions of these people upon a thousand points, for how differently have I been trained from these women of high rank, and men, too, with whom I am now thrown. Upon all topics we are accustomed to think, perhaps with more latitude, Religion, politics, morals, everything. I like the English extremely, even more than I had expected, and yet happy I am to think that our own best portions of society can bear a comparison with theirs. When I see you I can explain to you the differences, but I think we need not be ashamed of ourselves. End of Letter 8 All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter 9 of Letters from England, 1846 to 1849, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to I.P.D., London, January 2, 1847. My dear uncle, I refer you to my letters to my boys, for all the new persons and places we may have lately seen, while I give you, for auntie's amusement, a minute account of my visit into the country at Mr. Bates's where things are managed in a scrupulously English manner, so that it will give her the same idea of country life here as if it were a nobleman's castle. Our invitation was to arrive on Thursday, the day before Christmas, to dine and to remain until the following Tuesday morning. His place is at East Sheen, which receives its name from the Anglo-Saxon word for beauty. It adjoins Richmond Park, beyond which is the celebrated Richmond Hill, Twickenham, Kew, etc., etc., we arrived at East Sheen at half-past five, but I ought first to mention the preparations for a country excursion. Our own carriage has, of course, no dickey for my maid, or conveniences for luggage, so we take a travelling carriage. The Imperials, which are large, flat boxes covering the whole top of the carriage, capital for velvet dresses, and smaller ones fitting into all the seats in the carriage, and before and behind, are brought to you the day before. I am merely asked what dresses I wish taken, and that is all I know of the matter, so thoroughly does an English maid understand her business. We were shown on our arrival into a charming room, semi-library. In a few minutes a servant came to show me to my apartment, which was very superb, with a comfortable dressing-room and fire for Mr. Bancroft, where the faithful Keats unpacked his dressing materials, while I was in a few moments seated at the toilette to undergo my hairdressing, surrounded by all my apparatus and a blazing fire to welcome me with a hissing tea-kettle of hot water and every comfort how well the english understand it i learn more and more every day my maid had a large room above me also with a fire indeed a lady's maid is a very great character indeed and would be much more unwilling to take her tea with or speak familiarly to a footman or a housemaid than i should My greatest mistakes in England have been committed towards those high dignitaries, my own maid and the butler, whose grandeur I entirely misappreciated and invaded, as in my ignorance I placed them, as we do, on the same level with other servants. She has her fire made for her, and loaf-sugar in her tea, which she and Kate sip in solitary majesty. However, she is most conscientious and worthy, as well as dignified, and thoroughly accomplished in her business." As all these things are pictures of English life, I mention them to amuse auntie, who likes to know how these matters are managed. After I am dressed, I join the circle in the library, where I am introduced to Mr. and Madame van der Weer, and Louis Bonaparte, the son of Louis, the ex-king of Holland, and of Hortense, Josephine's daughter. He was a long time imprisoned in the fortress of Ham, and has not long been free. There was also Napoleon, son of Jerome Bonaparte, and the princess of Württemberg. They were most agreeable, intelligent, and amiable young men, and I was glad to meet them. Lord and Lady Langdale, who have a place in the neighborhood, were invited to dine with us. He is master of the rolls, and was elevated to the peerage from great distinction at the bar. Lady Langdale is a sensible and excellent person. At dinner I sat between Mr. Bates and Lord Langdale, whom I liked very much. The next morning we assembled at ten for breakfast, which was at a round table, with a sort of circular tray, which turns at the least touch in the centre, leaving only a rim round the table for plates and cups. This was covered also with a white cloth, and on it were placed all the breakfast viand, with butter, sugar, cream, bread, toast-rack, and preserves. You need no servants, but turn it around and help yourself. I believe the Vanderwaers introduced it from a visit in Wales." Tea and coffee are served from a side-table always here. Let me tell Auntie that our simple breakfast dress is unknown in England. You come down in the morning, dressed for the day, until six or seven in the evening, when your dress is low-neck and short-sleeves for dinner. At this season the morning dress is a rich silk or velvet, high body, quite close in the throat, with handsome collar and cuffs, and always a cap. Madame Vanderveer wore every day a different dress, all very rich, but I adhered to a black watered silk with the same simple cap I wore at home. I took a drive through Richmond Park, where Henry VIII watched to see a signal on the tower, when Anne Boleyn's head fell, and galloped off to marry Jane Seymour, to Richmond Terrace, which is ravishingly beautiful even at this season. The next day the gentlemen all went to town, and Madame Vanderweer and I passed the day tete-a-tete, very pleasantly, as her experience in diplomatic life is very useful to me." Her manners are very pleasing and entirely unaffected. She has great tact and quickness of perception, great intelligence and amiability, and is altogether extremely well fitted for the role she plays in life. Her husband is charming. They have three children, very lovely. The eldest, Victor, a fine boy of seven years old, Victoria, a girl of four, for whom the queen was sponsor, and Albert, to whom Prince Albert performed the same office. This was, of course, voluntary in the royal parties, as it was not a favor to be asked. Madame van der Weer is not spoiled, certainly, by the prominent part she was called to play in this great center of the world, at so early an age, and makes an excellent courtier. I could not help pitying her, however, for looking forward to going through, year after year, the same round of ceremonies, forms, and societies. For us it is a new study, and invaluable for a short time, but I could not bear it for life as these European diplomatists. Besides, we Americans really enjoy a kind of society and a much nearer intercourse than other foreigners in the literary, scientific, and even social circles. On Saturday evening Lord William Fitzroy and daughter joined our party with Sir William Hooker and Lady Hooker. Sir William Hooker is one of the most interesting persons I have seen in England. He is a great naturalist and has the charge of the great botanical gardens at Kew. He devoted a morning to us there, and it was the most delightful one I have passed. There are twenty-eight different conservatories filled with vegetable wonders of the whole world. Length of time and regal wealth have conspired to make the Kew Gardens beyond our conceptions entirely. Sir William pointed out to us all that was very rare or curious, which added much to my pleasure. He showed us a drawing of the largest flower ever known on earth, which Sir Stamfield Raffles discovered in Sumatra." It was a parasite, without leaves or stem, and the flower weighed fifteen pounds. Lady Raffles furnished him the materials for the drawing. I dined in company with her not long ago, and regret now that I did not make her tell me about the wonders of that region. At the same dinner you may meet so many people, each having their peculiar gift, that one cannot avail oneself of the opportunity of extracting from each what is precious. I always wish I could sit by everybody at the same time, and I could often employ a dozen heads, if I had them, instead of my poor, miserable one. From Sir William Hooker I learned as much about the vegetable world as Mr. Bancroft did from the Dean of Eli on architecture, when he expounded to him the Cathedral of Eli, pointing out the successive styles of the Gothic, and the different periods in which the different parts were built. Books are dull teachers compared with these gifted men giving you a lecture upon subjects before your eyes." "'On Sunday we dined with our own party, on Monday some diplomatic people, the Lisboas and one of Mr. Bates's partners, and on Tuesday we came home. I must not omit a visit, while we were there, from Mr. Taylor, van Artveld, who is son-in-law of Lord Monteagle and lives in the neighborhood. He has a very fine countenance and still finer voice, and is altogether one of those literary persons who do not disappoint you, but whose whole being is equal to their works.' I hope to see more of him, as they spoke of cultivating us, and Mr. Taylor was quite a prodigy of our kind and dear friend, Dr. Holland, and dedicated his last poem to him. This expression, I shall cultivate you, we hear constantly, and it strikes me as oddly as our Western being raised. Indeed, I hear improper Anglicisms constantly, and they have nearly as many as we have. The upper classes here, however, do speak English so roundly and fully giving every letter its due, that it pleases my ear amazingly. On Wednesday I go for the first time to Westminster Abbey, on Epiphany, to hear the Athanasian creed chanted. I have as yet had no time for sight-seeing, as the days are so short that necessary visits take all my time. No one goes out in a carriage till after two, as the servants dine at one, and in the morning early the footman is employed in the house. A coachman never leaves his box here, and a footman is indispensable on all occasions. No visit can be paid till three, and this gives me very little time in these short days. Everything here is inflexible as the laws of the Medes and Persians, and, though I am called mistress even by old Cates, with his gray hair and black coat, I cannot make one of them do anything, except by the person and at the time which English custom prescribes. They are brought up to fill certain situations, and fill them perfectly, but cannot or will not vary i am frequently asked by the ladies here if i have formed a household to please me and i am obliged to confess that i have a very nice household but that i am the only refractory member of it i am always asking the wrong person for coals etc etc the division of labor or rather ceremonies between the butler and footman i have now mastered i believe in some degree but that between the upper and under housemaid is still a profound mystery to me though the upper has explained to me for the twentieth time that she did only the top of the work. My cook comes up to me every morning for orders, and always drops the deepest curtsy, but then I doubt if her hands are ever profaned by touching a poker, and she never washes a dish. She is cook and housekeeper, and presides over the housekeeper's room, which has a Brussels carpet and center table, with one side entirely occupied by the linen presses, of which my maid, my vice-regent, only much greater than me, keeps the key and dispenses every towel, even for the kitchen. She keeps lists of everything, and would feel bound to replace anything missing. I shall make you laugh and Mrs. Goodwin stare, by some of my housekeeping stories, the next evening I passed in your little pleasant parlour. A word unknown here. End of Letter 9. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Letter ten of Letters From England, eighteen forty six to eighteen forty nine, by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter to WDB and AB, London, january tenth, eighteen forty-seven. My very dear children. Yesterday we dined at Lady Charleville's, the old lady of eighty-four, at whose house I mentioned an evening visit in my last letter, and I must tell you all about it to entertain dear Grandma. I will be minute for once, and give you all the little details of a London dinner, and they are all precisely alike. We arrived at Cavendish Square a quarter before seven, very early, and were shown into a semi-library on the same floor with the dining-room. The servants take your cloak, etc., in the passage, and I am never shown into a room with a mirror as with us, and never into a chamber or bedroom. We found Lady Charleville and her daughter with one young gentleman with whom I chatted till dinner, and who, I found, was Sir William Burdett, son of Sir Francis and brother of Miss Angelina Coutts. I happened to have on the corsage of my black velvet a white moss rose and buds, which I thought rather youthful for me, but the old lady had them on her cap. She is full of intelligence, and has always been in the habit of drawing a great deal. Very soon came in Lord Almer, who was formerly Governor of Canada, and Lady Colchester, daughter of Lord Ellenborough, a very pretty woman of thirty-five, I should think, Sir William and Lady Chatterton, and Mr. Algernon Greyville, whose grandmother wrote the beautiful Prayer for Indifference, an old favorite of mine, and Mr. McGregor, the political economist. Lord Almere took me out, and I found him a nice old peer, and discovered that ever since the death of his uncle, Lord Whitworth, whose title is extinct, he had borne the arms of both Almer and Whitworth. Mr. Bancroft took out Lady Colchester, and the old lady was wheeled out precisely as Grandma is. At table she helped to the fish, cod, garnished round with smelts, and insisted on carving the turkey herself, which she did extremely well. By the way, I observe they never carve the breast of a turkey longitudinally, as we do, but in short slices, a little diagonally from the center. This makes many more slices, and quite large enough when there are so many other dishes. The four entree dishes are always placed on the table when we sit down, according to our old fashion, and not one by one. They have them warmed with hot water, so that they keep hot while the soup and fish are eaten. Turkey, even boiled turkey, is brought on after the entrees, mutton, a saddle always, or venison, with a pheasant or partridges. With the roast is always put on the sweets, as they are called, as the term dessert seems restricted to the last course of fruits. During the dinner there are always long strips of damask all around the table which are removed before the dessert is put on, and there is no brushing of crumbs. You may not care for all this, but the housekeepers may." I had Mr. Greenville, the other side of me, who seemed much surprised that I, an American, should know the prayer for indifference which he doubted if twenty persons in England read in these modern days. It is a great mystery to me yet how people get to know each other in London. Persons talk to you whom you do not know, for no one is introduced as a general rule. I have sometimes quite an acquaintance with a person and exchange visits, and yet do not succeed for a long time in putting their name and the person together. It is a great puzzle to a stranger, but it has its conveniences for the English themselves. We are endeavoring to become acquainted with the English mind, not only through society, but through its products in other ways. Natural science is the department into which they seem to have thrown their intellect most effectively for the last ten or fifteen years. We are reading Hewell's History of the Inductive Sciences, which gives one a summary of what has been accomplished in that way, not only in past ages but in the present. Every moment here is precious to me and I am anxious to make the best use of it but I have immense demands on my time in every way. End of letter 10 read by Sibella Denton all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information please visit librivox.org Letter 11 of letters from england 1846 to 1849 by Elizabeth Davis Bancroft Read for org into the public domain. Letter to W. D. B. and A. B. Tuesday night, January nineteenth, eighteen 1847. To-day we have been present at the opening of Parliament, but how can I picture to you the interest and magnificence of the scene? I will begin quite back and give you all the preparations for a court day. Ten days before a note was written to Lord Willoughby, Daresby informing him of my intention to attend, that a seat might be reserved for me, and also soliciting several tickets for American ladies and gentlemen. I cannot take them with me, however, as the seat assigned to the ladies of foreign ministers is very near the throne. This morning when I awoke the fog was thicker than I ever knew it, even here. The air was one dense orange-colored mass. What a pity the English cannot borrow our bright blue skies in which to exhibit their royal pageants! Mr. Bancroft's court-dress had not been sent home, our servants' liveries had not made their appearance, and our carriage only arrived last night, and I had not passed judgment upon it. Fogs and tradesmen! These are the torments of London. Very soon came the tailor with embroidered dress, sword, and chapeau, but alas, Mr. Isidore, who was to have dressed my hair at half-past ten, was not forthcoming, and to complete my perplexity he had my head-dress in his possession." At last, just as Russell had resumed her office at the Toilette, came Isidore, a little before twelve, coiffure and all, which was so pretty that I quite forgave him all his sins. It was of green leaves and white fleur-de-lis, with a white ostrich-feather drooping on one side. I wear my hair now plain in front, and the wreath was very flat and classical in its style. My dress was black velvet with a very rich bertha a bouquet on the front of fleur-de-lis like the coiffure and a cashmere shawl completed my array i have had the diamond pin and earrings which your father gave me reset and made into a magnificent brooch and so arranged i can also wear it as a necklace or bracelet on this occasion it was my necklace miss murray came to go with me as she wished to be by my side to point out everybody and her badge as maid of honour would take her to any part of the house at half-past twelve she and i set out and after leaving us the carriage returned for your father and Mr. Broadhead. But first let me tell you something of our equipage. It is a chariot, not a coach. That is, it has but one seat, but the whole front being glass makes it much more agreeable to such persons as have not large families. The color is maroon, with a silver molding, and it has the American arms on the panel. The liveries are blue and red. On court days they have blue plush breeches and white silk stockings with buckles on their shoes. Your father leaves all these matters to me, and they have given me no little plague. When I thought I had arranged everything necessary, the coachman, good old Brooks, solicited an audience a day or two ago, and began, Mistress, did you tell them to send the pads and the fronts and the hand-pieces? Heaven and earth! What are all these things? said I. Why, ma'am, we always has pads under the saddle on court days, trimmed round with the colors of the livery, and we has fronts made out of ribbons for the horses' heads and we has white hand-pieces for the reins. This is a specimen of the little troubles of court life, but it has its compensations. To go back to Miss Murray and myself, who are driving through the park between files of people, thousands and thousands, all awaiting with patient, loyal faces the passage of the Queen and of the state carriages. The Queen's was drawn by eight cream-colored horses, and the servants flaming with scarlet and gold. This part of the park, near the palace, is only accessible to the carriages of the foreign ministers, ministers, and officers of the household. We arrive at the Parliament House, move through the long corridor, and give up our tickets at the door of the chamber. It is a very long, narrow room. At the upper end is the throne. On the right is the seat of the ambassadors, on the left of their ladies. Just in front of the throne is the wool sack of the Lord Chancellor, looking like a drawing-room divan, covered with crimson velvet. Below this are rows of seats for the judges, who are all in their wigs and scarlet robes, the bishops and the peers, all in robes of scarlet and ermine. Opposite the throne at the lower end is the bar of the commons. On the right of the queen's chair is a vacant one, on which is carved three plumes, the insignia of the Prince of Wales, who will occupy it when he is seven or nine years old. On the left Prince Albert sits. The seat assigned me was in the front row, and quite open, like a sofa, so that I could talk with any gentleman whom I knew. Madame Vanderweer was on one side of me, and the Princess Calamachi on the other, and Miss Murray just behind me. She insisted on introducing me to all her noble relatives. Her cousin the young Duke of Athol, the Duke of Boucle, their nephew the Marquis of Camden, her brother the Bishop of Rochester. There were many whom I had seen before, so that the hour passed very agreeably very soon came in the duke of cambridge at which everybody rose he being a royal duke he was dressed in the scarlet kingly robe trimmed with ermine and with his white hair and whiskers he is an old man was most picturesque and scenic reminding me of king lear and other stage kings he requested to be introduced to me upon which i rose of course he soon said be seated and we went on with the conversation i told him how much i liked kew garden where he has a favourite place When I first entered I was greeted very cordially by a personage in a black gown and wig, whom I did not know. He laughed and said, I am Mr. Senior, whom you saw only Saturday evening, but you do not know me in my wig. It is, indeed, an entire transformation, for it reaches down on the shoulders. He is a master in chancery. He stood by me nearly all the time, and pointed out many of the judges, and some persons not in Miss Murray's line. But the trumpets sound, the Queen approaches, The trumpet continues, and first enter at a side door, close at my elbow, the College of Heralds, richly dressed. Slowly, two and two, and then the great officers of the household, then the Lord Chancellor, bearing the purse, seal, and speech of the Queen, with the mace-bearers before him. Then Lord Lansdowne with the Crown, the Earl of Zetland with the Cap of Maintenance, and the Duke of Wellington with the Sword of State. Then Prince Albert, leading the Queen, followed by the Duchess of Sutherland, mistress of the robes, and the Marchioness of Duro, daughter-in-law of the Duke of Wellington, who was one of the ladies-in-waiting. The Queen and Prince sit down, while everybody else remains standing. The Queen then says, in a voice most clear and sweet, "'My lords,' rolling the R, "'be seated,' upon which the peers sit down, except those who enter with the Queen, who group themselves about the throne in the most picturesque manner." The queen had a crown of diamonds, with splendid necklace and stomacher of the same. The Duchess of Sutherland close by her side with her ducal coronet of diamonds, and a little back, Lady Duro, also with her coronet. On the right of the throne stood the Lord Chancellor, with scarlet robe and flowing wig, holding the speech, surrounded by the emblems of his office. A little farther, one step down, Lord Lansdowne, holding the crown on a crimson velvet cushion and on the left the Duke of Wellington, brandishing the sword of state in the air, with the Earl of Zetland by his side. The Queen's train of royal purple, or rather deep crimson, was borne by many train-bearers. The whole scene seemed to me like a dream or a vision. After a few minutes the Lord Chancellor came forward and presented the speech to the Queen. She read it sitting and most exquisitely. Her voice is flute-like, and her whole emphasis decided and intelligent. Very soon after the speech is finished she leaves the house, and we all follow as soon as we can get our carriages. Lord Lansdowne told me before she came in that the speech would be longer than usual, but not so long as your President's speeches. It has been a day of high pleasure and more like a romance than a reality to me, and being in the very midst of it as I was made it more striking than if I had looked on it from a distant gallery. End of Letter 11. Read by Sibella Denton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queen Bee, The Life of Queen Victoria. Remember, if you would like to support this podcast, you can look in the show description notes to find a link.